0: Today is part 30 of a 31-part series. If you are brand new with us, you're going to go, I missed 30 parts. Are you serious? Well, you only missed 29. So you're all right. You're going to see 30. And then next week, uh, we wrap up the entire year series. There's 31 parts to it. And uh, we've been going through the lives of King Saul and then the lives of King David. And David actually passes away next week. So he's still alive this week. But you can be able to find out his handoff. To his son Solomon next week we'll be covering that we will be closing the book of second Samuel today uh, In its entirety after first and second But David's death is actually recorded in first Kings. So we're going to be addressing that next week So take out the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door If you don't have a Bible there should be one under the chair in front of you uh, And i'll give you the page number on where to turn to if you don't have one of your own or if you don't know how to navigate through it really fast Then uh, that'll help you out a little bit All right, you'll notice that today's message is entitled too big for his britches, right? And I wanted to share just this thought that leads us to the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you Anytime we get into the mindset That we're in control That we are more in control than god that we have the say over our lives that we are the ones that is doing everything in our lives and we get cocky arrogant uh prideful whatever word you want to use whenever we get into that mindset we demonstrate sheer absurdity to be prideful against god is silliness it's just not realistic why uh Remember last week when we were all kind of together and I did a short devotion on how infinite God is. Do you remember that? We talked about the fact that God is so enormous, so amazing, so outside that all of our millions and billions of galaxies that we see and do not see yet, the very outer reaches of our universe that we have yet to come in contact with, all of that is like sand before God. When you have an infinite God like that, how in the world do we take his seat in our lives? How do we sit on the throne in our lives when it's rightfully God's? Do we really think that we are smarter and more in control than an infinite God? That is ridiculous. The very idea of pride is just dumb. It doesn't even make sense, it's not realistic. And so the only way we can get prideful is if we start slipping in remembering who God is. And we start exalting ourselves. Each and every time we choose to do something that God says we shouldn't do, we're not thinking right. Because God should be in charge. God is in charge. But every once in a while we get into these places where We start thinking that we're a big deal and we start making decisions that God doesn't like David did that and it cost his nation dearly So what we're going to do is we're going to dive into it The fill in the blank in front of you is this if you want to fill that out real quickly Never forget that God gave you your blessings. Never forget That God gave you your blessings. It is not you It is God now let me give you a little uh, recap as you're turning. Second Samuel, last chapter, 2 Samuel 24, verse 1. It's page 277 in the Bibles under those seats. All right, 277 if you want to turn there. 2 Samuel 24, 1. Let me give you a recap on where we're at. For all practical purposes, the story of King David, the same guy that killed Goliath, that became the greatest king of all Israel, we're now going back 3,000 years in time. We're in 2011, the end of that year. Let's zoom all the way back to zero. That's 2,000 years. We're at about 970 B.C. Kick another 1,000 years on top of that. And that's about where we're at in history. We're at basically the end of David's story. And the author said, before we move on to something else, there's a couple stories you need to know or we can't leave the situation alone. And he accounted for... A couple different things one of those was where King Saul made a choice outside of God's will and it cost the nation he's going to recount one here where David did the same thing he's going to recount where God gave the nation victory and he's going to recount how great God is all that's loaded into the appendix at the end of the book which is where we're at but when we talk about a man after God's own heart like David and we talk about a good guy We always love that category about where good guys always do everything right. That's not true. Good guys have bad spots. Just like bad guys have good spots. David, as much as he is the apple of God's eye and a man after God's own heart, still slipped in his mind about who God was and still made very, very poor decisions. I think that's one of the reasons why we love this guy so much. Because we know that God thought he was awesome, but he was just like us. Let's go ahead and dive into scripture today, Second uh, Samuel 24, 1, and we'll kind of go through it. Now, we have the kids in here with us today, a whole bunch of them. And so, uh, kids, feel free, if you get bored out of your mind, to do something else. You can just hang out and draw and, and uh, you know, try to bother your parents as much as possible. That'd be great. Uh, they're not listening to me anyway, so don't worry about it. Uh, and so we're, I'm going to kind of include them a little bit, um, along the way that if they're interested in, in hearing the guy that's yelling at them, that's cool. I'll give a little bit of background. We'll have some maps, stuff like that. All right, let's dive into this. It says again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. What do you mean again? Well, it means it happened before. Last time Saul did it. King Saul did it. Remember, King Saul made this decision to try to wipe out a whole people group called the Gibeonites. And God said, that's not nice. That's not fair. And he brought a three-year famine on the land. Because when the king went south, the whole nation took the hit. Well, in the same way, we'd look back and we'd go, well, of course, Saul did it. He wasn't a great king. Same thing happens with David. Again, the nation was going to have judgment on them. It wasn't just about David. It was also about the whole nation. God said, you're not paying attention to me. You're not focusing on me. You're living for yourselves. You're living selfishly. You're focused on all your own things. You're not interested in the things of God. So I'm going to get your attention. And one of the ways I get your attention is I allow bad things to happen in your world. Now, does God really work through natural disaster? Well, obviously he does. Uh, He works through all types of disaster. It's most of the reasons why we're at church at all. I want you to think about the last time that you were really fired up and connected with God. Something really bad happened right before that. Have you noticed that? The time that you were completely in prayer, right? Why? Because when things get desperate in our situations, we focus on the Lord it's interesting because i was talking to somebody earlier this week and they're saying you know what i don't get it because all the people outside the church i have a lot of friends and they're they're good they're balanced and healthy and they're outside the church i go into the church and they're all screwed up and i was like yeah that's why we're all here of course that's the way it's gonna go because when things are going well for us we forget god but when things go badly for us we remember him so sure enough The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And then the phrase says, and he, meaning God, incited David against them. David's going to stir up trouble for Israel. And God said, go number Israel and Judah. All right, two things are weird about that. Number one, God incited David against Israel by having him count the people. Why is that a big deal? So what? You count people. Counting people is not a sin. Counting people is not a bad thing, right? As a matter of fact, he took a census. We take censuses here in the United States all the time, right? I mean, anytime you drive into a new town, it says Folsom, population, whatever. The only reason they know the population is because we took a census. And as a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, God commanded at times to take a census. So counting people is not bad, but whatever David is about to do is bad. We're not told why. But the weirdest thing about the line that we just read is that this story is told exactly in another book of the Bible, 1 Chronicles. If you read that account, there is one significant change in that line. It says, and Satan incited David to take a census. Why is that important? Because you just interchanged God and Satan in the same sentence. Now, I don't know anywhere else in scripture that it does that. How weird is that? Now, we all picture that it's God's one big bad guy and he's fighting the other big bad guy that's Satan and they duke it out all the time and it's good versus evil and there's this great big war happening. Hold on. We need to be very clear again on this. That's not at all what is happening. There is an infinite all-powerful, almighty, incomprehensible, right, omniscient, omnipresent God, and then there's a rebel in the universe, a created being, more powerful than us, most certainly, the pinnacle of God's creation, absolutely, but a created being, that is Satan. So we have God, the infinite, Satan, the created rebel that's going against him. And let me be very clear as well on this. The only reason that Satan still is around, the only reason there are things like demons and bad guys, is because God is still utilizing them for his purposes. When he is done with them, they go bye-bye. That's it. So as much as we think, oh, I wonder who's going to win. That's ridiculous. We know who's going to win. God is still using them. That's the only reason why they're here. So that still doesn't answer why the Bible can interchange God and Satan in the same sentence. Well, we've seen it happen before. If you remember the story of Job, anybody remember that story, right? Now, Job, the story itself is pretty dramatic, but it starts like this. God and Satan are having a conversation in heaven. That's another thing that we don't pay attention to. We're like, what? Why are they talking, right? thought they hated each other. They're having this dialogue, and God brings up Job in conversation. Hey, Satan, come here for a second. Have you seen that dude? Job, that's my man. of course I've seen him. I've been trying to kill that guy for years. Yeah, so why haven't you? Well, because you're protecting him. It's the only reason he likes you, God, because you're shielding him and protecting him. Oh, Satan, you're saying that if I don't protect him the same way, then he'd turn on me, right? That's exactly what I'm saying. All right. Have at him. Tear him apart. And I'll explain very clearly to you and demonstrate that he's my man. And the rest of the story takes place, right? Well, what's interesting is you just had God bring up the scenario and Satan carried out the task. For whose glory? God's glory. It happens all the time. This is no different. God set something about to bring about the judgment on the people of Israel and utilize Satan in carrying that out. That is not all that unusual. All right, we move on. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king says to his buddy, the head of his army... The commander of the army joab who was with him and he tells him go through all the tribes of israel from the top to the bottom from dan the city of dan to the city of beersheba and i want you to number the people now he's going to count all the males all the boys 20 years old and older why because he's counting military only counting soldiers not all the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of the Lord my king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? Joab said, David, I hope that blessing rises in this nation. I hope that we have a huge army, but why in the world do you want to count them? That's not right. Joab knows something. David knows what he's doing isn't right. Why would David count his military? Let me me make it a little bit more practical to you. Let's say you keep counting your money. Why do you count your money? Now, the first answer you're going to give, especially if you don't have a huge amount of it, is that you want to know how to be responsible. You're going to say, well, I, want, I count my money, so I always know what I can spend and what I can't spend. It's a matter of budgeting. All right, let's say you have a whole bunch of money, and it's not a matter of budgeting. If you kept counting it, why would you do that? There's usually one of two reasons. One, you're insecure, and you're always counting it because you want to know that your money will be there to save you. And you're not living by faith at all. You're living by sight. Do I have enough to protect myself? Or number two, it's sheer pride. You want to count your money because when you get in a dialogue with somebody else who has a lot of money and they say, hey, I have this much money, how much money do you have? You're able to say, I have this much money. Because why are you constantly counting it if you don't have to know that right now? Because you want to go, wow, look at all that I have. Something's wrong with David's heart. He wants to know how many soldiers he has because back then, that was the strength of the nation. There's one other possible reason why he's going to get in trouble for this. There is a really weird passage in Exodus 30. So you got to zoom back in time again to Moses' day. And in Exodus 30... There's a really weird law on the books. It says, whenever you count the people of Israel, everyone who is alive to be counted needs to give a temple tax. Why? Well, because basically they're saying, hey, if you counted me, I'm alive. That means I've been blessed by God, so I'm going to hand back to him something. He said, if they don't pay the tax, a famine will come on your land. Oh, that's weird. Interesting. Is David trying to raise revenue? Is that what he's doing? Is this a money move? Is he trying to count all the males in the military and he's going to tax them and bring in more money? Or does he exempt his military and even though he's going to count the whole nation, there is no tax that's going to be required and therefore something bad is going to happen on the land? There's multiple reasons, four possible reasons why David's going to get in trouble. But here's what you need to know. David knew what he was doing was wrong. And even Joab told him to knock it off. Okay? Let's make it practical again. Have you ever done something wrong and all your friends told you that that was a bad idea? Come on, you know what I'm talking about, right? You knew what you were doing was wrong. You even had friends that said, why in the world would you date that guy? Yeah? Ladies, you know what I'm talking about. Guys, same thing. Man, you can't do that. You can't act like that. You can't be around those kind of people. What are you doing? You can't go to that place or it's just going to go ugly for you. But sure enough, you completely blocked all of them out because you knew what you wanted to do. You wanted to do the wrong thing. Kids, same way. You're about to do something to get in trouble. And one of your friends says, I don't think you should do that. You're going to get in trouble. And you didn't listen to what they had to say. Can you imagine that that was God's way of talking to you? How many people has God sent in your life to try to get across a point and you're just not listening? Hmm. Here's what's interesting. Look at the next line. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. Let's go ahead and throw up that slide, Joel, if you can. Um, Right here if you're new with us we kind of like the idea of using maps whenever possible and uh, we put the modern day titles These were not the titles of the locations back in David's day, but it helps us get an idea If we had a big huge map of the globe America's way over here kids. This is my awesome pointer All right, it's the brightest pointer in the whole wide world. All right, here we go now I want you to picture that over here is Africa. Big, huge thing. We just talked about Pastor Steve, the guy on the video. He's from Africa, way over here. Uganda's down here. Now, this is the Mediterranean Ocean. This up here is Europe, where you hear about places like Germany and Switzerland, all that. We got Spain. Italy looks like it's a boot kicking something. And then we got Greece right here. Turkey. Paul the Apostle was born right here at the bottom of uh, what we know as modern-day Turkey. And right here is called the Middle East area, all of this. And we're going to zoom right into here, right about where Israel is or Jerusalem. If you look at this map, the bumpy spots, the darkened spots are mountains. The smooth spots are valleys. So you can see where the water would normally go in rivers, beds, or even dry valleys. And right here you see Bethlehem where Jesus, of course, was born. And then Jerusalem. We're going to zoom in one more time on this piece of the nation. Now, if you look at this one, the darker brown lines are the territory lines or the boundary lines of Israel in David's day. Now, he's going to send them out to go on a nine and a half month journey around the nation, counting the military guys. The way it's going to go is it's going to go counterclockwise, right? Clock normally goes this way. We're going this way. So he's going to start out right here. Go to Jezreel. Go all the way up to the top by Sidon, zoom all the way back down and come back down into Jerusalem, counting everybody. Whenever you hear the phrase from Dan to Beersheba, Dan's at the very top, Beersheba's at the very bottom. It's the normal way of talking about all of Israel. It took him nine and a half months to count everybody. Why is that important? Because David made a bad decision, was told he made a bad decision, and in nine and a half months, he didn't even change his mind. Interesting, I was reading Warren Wiersbe's commentary and he said, do you realize he had 10 months to say, Lord, I'm sorry. That was a bad idea. Nope. He stuck to his guns. He's going to do what he wants to do. Now, maybe you have pushed against God and you rebelled and rebelled and rebelled and then you finally got what you wanted. How'd that feel? Was it as awesome as you thought? No, never is right Same thing happened with David. Pick it up in verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he numbered the people. He found out that he had 1.3 to 1.6 million soldiers, which estimates about 6 million people in the land. Now, he could have felt really good about that. Man, I got the biggest, baddest army. I'm all that. It was not nearly as satisfying as he thought. Now he realized, now that I know the information, I violated what God asked me to do. And it doesn't feel as good as it should have. He's convicted. David's heart struck him after he numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity, the sin of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. You ever feel bad for the stuff you do? You ever cry about it? Here's what's interesting. We think that if we cry about it, everything's cool. Because you're sufficiently bad, sad about it, right? You're sufficiently feel bad enough. So we assume that, hey, if I hurt your feelings, or if I ruin something in your life, and I'm super sad about it, we should be all right. Guess what? We're not. Just for the fact that you cried about something doesn't make me better. That's not ultimately a change of heart just because you're super sad about something doesn't mean everything is fixed The other thing that's interesting is we get super sad when we get busted for stuff Isn't that interesting? We're completely fine until the hammer comes down once the hammer comes down. Oh, that was a bad decision. Really? You think so? Well, yeah, that's why it went badly for you. I get it but that's Not what the Bible talks about as repentance either. The Bible says that when we do something wrong, we turn away from it and we go to seek to make it right. And we pursue God by turning away and going the opposite direction from our sin. It's more than just being bummed out about it. It's more than just feeling guilty. It's more than just getting busted. It's a heart change. David was pretty sad, but now consequences are about to hit. Check this out. This is kind of weird. When David arose in the morning, verse 11, the word of the Lord came to his buddy, his prophet, his seer, the guy that talks for God in his palace named Gad. God says, go and say to David, Gad, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So God came to David and told him and said to him, Dave, I got three choices for you from God. You're going to get busted. You get to pick behind door number one, two, or three. Let me explain what they are. Number one, shall three years of famine come to you in your land? You want to do it like the same way you saw it happen with Saul? Because people starve in a famine. Famine means there's no more food. You want to have people starve for three years. That's your first choice. Number two. Will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? You want war? Dave, you spent your whole life on the run. You want to do that again? Because that's your second option. Door number three. Will there be three days pestilence in your land? What's pestilence? Pestilence is serious bad disease that I can give you and you're going to give someone else and they're going to give someone else and it spreads super rapidly and a bunch of people die. So basically here are your choices. Do you want death, death or death? right? Those are your options. Now you get to pick and choose your death, but still we're going to have death come in somehow, some way. Why? Because God's bringing judgment on the nation. Now why would God even ask his opinion? I mean, that's kind of weird, right? He's getting him to own it. He's getting him to become part of the process. God is actually asking him, which punishment do you want? Now this became practical and kind of funny, uh, in my life, uh, some years ago, my dad has always been a part of education system, usually K through 12. He's been a teacher and a principal and a superintendent. And then he got his doctorate in education and he was as a school board member. And then he was a, a consultant to other superintendents. I mean, he's Mr. Education and it was largely K through eight. So younger kids, And I remember watching him, he would walk around through and joke with the kids on the playground and everything, and I would go to school with him sometimes, and I'd play on the playground while other kids had to be in class, and I'd make fun of them, and it was awesome. Anyway, now, my dad, he would work even with the kindergartners, the little guys, and when the kindergartners would get sent to the principal's office, there's my dad, he's six foot tall, decent sized guy, and he's sitting across his big, huge desk. And so the little kids come in before the principal and he looks at him and he says, so, what'd you do? And they would say, well, I shoved Billy's face in the mud. And he's like, ooh, that doesn't sound good. And they're like, no, that was bad. And he said, all right, what do you think your punishment should be? And he would ask the kindergartners what their punishment should be. Why did he do that? Because whatever he was going to come up with may or may not be effective. But in their innocence, they would automatically confess out what the worst possible punishment could be. And so what they would do is they would say things like, well, I, I really like the slide. And he's like, yeah. And they're like, well, maybe I shouldn't be able to go on the slide for seven days. And he'd go, yep, that does sound fair. And they're like, oh, why that? How would you know? <laughs> and that was their punishment. David, what do you want? Which form of death do you want? Look at his answer. He said, Consider and decide what answer that I will return to him who sent me. And David said to Gad to get back to God, I'm in great distress. I don't like any of my options, but let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is great, but don't let me fall into the hand of man. So he said, I'd rather pick natural disaster that God's orchestrating than to go against mankind. Here's what's so weird about that story. When it came to punishment, David wanted to run into the hands of God. That is so opposite of us. We still have this bogus view that God's the bad guy. That God's not the merciful one. We'd always rather run to people. Oh, they're more merciful. Really? Then you don't know God. David knew God well enough to say, if I'm going to get in trouble, I want to run to my heavenly father because as much as he will punish me, he seeks my best interest and mankind doesn't. David saw God as the compassionate, loving, grace-filled, mercy God that he is. Do you see him like that at all? Or would you instantly say, hey, get me anywhere else, but don't let me fall into the hands of God? David said, but God is the most important to me. Of course I would go to him. All right, so he picks it. So the Lord sent a pestilence. Oh, that bad disease thing. On Israel from the morning until the appointed time. Now, the appointed time initially was three days later. It was supposed to be three days of bad disease. And maybe that's what it means in Hebrew, but what you're going to find is that God cuts short the time. Because as much as he brings this plague on the land, his mercy doesn't even let him fully discipline all the way through. He actually cuts it short out of his kindness and love. Now, the way it's written in Hebrew, it can either mean that it was during a portion of the third day that he cut it short, or other scholars believe that it means 3 p.m. Why is that important? From 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., maybe it was one day. Look at the effect of one day under the wrath of God. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. That's a rough disease if 70,000 can die in one day we got some serious biblical plague going on yeah but what's interesting is that phrase 70,000 men died every other time that word is translated it's translated military man why is that important because if indeed 70,000 military men died This is what God was saying. Hey, did you go out and count your military? Really? You think that you're all big and bad now because you got all these guys. You got a million six. Is that what you got? And that's what makes you a big deal. You know what? I just decimated your army. 70,000. How about that? I just shrunk it down. Are we going to play this game? Is it that you think that you're so powerful because of all your warriors? Dude, the only reason you have ever won a war is because I fought for you. It was never your people. It was never your soldiers. I did it with Gideon. Gideon was ready to go in with thousands of men. I curved it all the way down to what? I curved it down to 300 men and I still won. I don't need your powerful soldiers. I do what I want to do and I always win. So if you want to say you have all this amazing army, I'll decimate them. You give me 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. and I will shut your army down. If God had not cut it short, how many could he have slaughtered? But look, when the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem, the holy city to destroy it, right? Because it was sweeping through the nation. The Lord relented. He stopped from the plague, the calamity, and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It's enough. Stop. Stay your hand. And at that point, the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, these innocent Leaders, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. A little too late, Dave. You don't get to switch. So right there, the angel of the commander of God's army with one sword swipe takes out 70,000. He's ready to bring it down again on Jerusalem. And God says, enough. I made my point. And he was standing on a high place just outside of David's city. ...of the city of David up on a hillside. And right there was a guy's house, Arana the Jebusite. What is a Jebusite? Well, very simply this. The old city of Jerusalem used to be called Jebus. What do you call somebody who lives in Jebus? A Jebusite. All right. Makes it easy. So this guy, Arana has this threshing floor up there. What's a threshing floor? Well, it's the way you get your food. You put, you cut down all the stalks of your wheat, you lay them all down on the ground, you grab a big old oxen or a big old cow, had, tie a sled to it, you can stand on the sled for weight, and you drive it. And as the cow crushes all the grain, if you're on a high place, the wind can sweep in, blow away all the bad stuff, leave all the kernels of grain and all the healthy stuff on the ground, you scoop it up and you begin to use it for food. So he was threshing up there and David looks up and God says, I want you to go up and build an altar for me right there on that spot. Now that is a very famous spot. It's one of the most famous spots in the entire world. Anybody know what that spot is? It's now, we know it from the old Testament is Mount Moriah. Why is Mount Moriah famous? Because a man named Abraham, the father of the Jews, offered up his son on Mount Moriah, Isaac. And before he was going to kill him, what did God say? Stop. I provided a sacrifice. Just like this. The wrath of God was coming on. God said, stop in the exact same location. I have provided a sacrifice. David will provide the sacrifice for you. No more death. It's the exact same location on that land that David purchases where his son Solomon builds the most famous temple in all the world. We now know it as the Temple Mount and the corner of the modern city of Jerusalem. It's the most holy site in the world. It became under Palestinian control and the Muslims came in and built a shrine to islam called the dome on the rock anytime you see a picture of jerusalem and there's that big gold dome that's the exact same spot where all this went down but here's what i want you to know as i close this portion out and bring up pastor russ to distribute communion to us and lead us through that as we close the service he says a line that i never want us to forget david is going up Arana sees the king showing up and he's like "Uh oh what did i do Right, Things are already bad in our land. Why is David coming up to me? David comes up and Arana says, what do you need, king? And he said, well, I need to buy your stuff. I need to buy your land. i got to build an altar here. And Arana says, well, by all means, I'm not going to have you pay for it. No way. You can have everything that I got. You can take my cow, offer that. You can take the wood from the sled, use that as a burnt offering. I'll even help you. You can have all the land that you want for free. And David says something amazing, something that we need to learn and own. He says this, I will absolutely not take it for free because I will not sacrifice to the Lord that which costs me nothing. I will not give God leftovers. I will not give God just whatever's easy. I will give God the best, the first, and my all. And he purchases that land. Pastor Russ, as he distributes communion and talks to you about it, I want you to think about this. There, just outside the walls of the holy city, Jesus Christ died on the cross and once again blood was shed so that the wrath would stop. The bread, the juice, represents another time That the merciful God said, I don't want you to hurt anymore. God will not say that wickedness is okay. But the loving Father that we serve will say, I'll take the hit. Jesus Christ died for you. And God loves you that much. I know things seem so crazy and wild. In this life. But Jesus loves you. An awful lot. Russ why don't you go ahead and lead us.
1: The story of scripture. Is. uh, And certainly. The story of. That we've seen in the book of 2 Samuel. Has been. The story of God showing up. And choosing to use. Incredibly fallen and broken people. To accomplish amazing and, and wonderful things. And if we look across the entirety of Scripture, we see that theme kind of recurring over and over and over again. And we see God continuing to show up and to forgive and to restore and to reestablish and do those things that he's amazing at. Sometimes our the reason things go bad is sometimes it's just because of our fallenness. It's because of our sinfulness. Um, but frankly, a lot of the times and sometimes it's just because we're forgetful. We'd like to think, well, we just don't forget the big things in life. But if we look at Scripture, we see that there's enormous things that have happened in people's lives, and we give God praise for amazing things. And then a short time later, we've completely forgotten that He's shown up at all, and then we wonder where He is. And I think in a unique way, when Jesus was on this earth, He pulled those guys that were closest to Him together and said, I'm going to leave you with a special way to remember me and to remember all that I've done and remember what. I'm going to do on a cross for you, and the amazing thing is that he did that, in, and it was always intended to be done in community with other Christians, with other believers, with other people who proclaim God's victory over sin and death. This morning, we want to draw together and do the very same thing. We want to remember Jesus as our victor. We want to remember Jesus as our Savior. We want to remember all that he's done for us, and we want to praise him for it, and a lot of us have spent a lot of time over the last 40 days considering those things and tr- trying to prepare our hearts and our minds in order to engage with the Lord this evening and just to see what He'll do and to see if He'll heal and see if He'll do some of the things that we've seen Him do in Scripture and that we see Him do on a somewhat regular basis across our lives. But as we as we've done that, we've we've each one of us have had moments where we've had to become a little bit introspective and. This morning, we want to allow for just a moment to, to be a little bit introspective uh, this morning in our approach to communion. Uh, we're not going to sing together as we normally do during communion. Um, Eric's just going to play a little bit. Um, the ushers are going to come forward and distribute the elements. And I would just ask that you would receive those elements if you're a follower of Jesus. And just consider all that he is. Consider what he's done. Remember him for being um, a great and merciful king. Remember him for being your savior, for being a victor, for being a God of power and mercy. Remember all the stuff that he's done for your life and in your life and those that you love in particular. Remember him in those ways this morning. The uh, ushers are going to come here in a moment and um, distribute the, uh, the elements and then I'm going to come back up and, uh, and lead us in receiving those together this morning. Uh, ushers, can you come forward?